Welcome to the podcast of Christ Church in Town in Jacksonville, Florida. We are seeking the renewal of all things in Jesus Christ. Towards that end, we are committed to cultivating personal transformation in Christ, an uncommon fellowship of racially and economically diverse individuals, and the flourishing of our neighbors. To join our local body in membership or financial support, visit ChristChurchInTown.org. This morning we are continuing in a sermon series that we started a couple of weeks ago uh, where we're looking at the book of Acts. Uh, we've called this series Purpose and Power because really that is uh, what uh, the story that's told in the book of Acts offers us, right? The, it's the idea that, uh, that Christianity, the, the faith that animates our lives, doesn't just fill our lives with hope for where we go when we die, but it fills our life in the here and now with a new purpose, uh, enlisting our lives unto God's cause in the world. And it also fills our life with a new power uh, as the Holy Spirit fills His church uh, to do His work and the work of His kingdom. And so this morning, our scripture reading will be Acts chapter 1, verses 12 through 26. Uh, if you're willing and able, would you stand as we read God's Word? Again, our scripture reading, Acts chapter 1, beginning in verse 12. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they had been staying. Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. And all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was about 120 in all. And he said, Brothers, the scriptures had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their own language, Akeldama, that is, the field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, May his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his office. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, know the hearts of all. Show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. This is God's word. It is absolutely true, and it's given to us in love. You can be seated. Well, this is a, this is a strange and hard text uh, in Acts. 
It comes uh, sandwiched in between two incredibly important texts about uh, really divine miracles that give birth to the church. Right? Remember last week we looked at uh, the ascension of Jesus, the resurrected Jesus uh, going up to be with his father, to be seated at the right hand of his father. And we said that it was this act of ascension where Jesus takes his throne that enables the church to continue his ministry. Right, And then uh, next week, in the next chapter, we're going to look at the falling of the Holy Spirit, the descent of the Spirit at Pentecost, where the people are filled with a new power to go about and do the work. And then sandwiched in between these two incredible passages of divine action is this relatively mundane text about uh, the disciples' work in between those two divine actions. In fact, calling it mundane is, is maybe underselling it a bit. There's moments where this passage is traumatic, right? Where they're dealing with the betrayal of Judas, the traitor who was one of the disciples who betrayed Jesus and then his suicide in despair. This is them dealing with failure of their leadership, dealing with trauma and sin and brokenness, and then searching for another one who had become their leader uh, with the twelve. And so this passage reminds us that the church exists within these two realities, right? That there is a sense in which the, char the church exists due to divine action, right? God uh, resurrecting Jesus, God saving us, God ascending to the right hand, God pouring out His Spirit, right? The church exists because of God's miracles. The church exists because of what God does. But the church is also human. The church exists in what we do, our own frailty, our own sin, our own brokenness, our own giftedness. That the church, you know, you can think of it somewhat like the incarnation of Jesus, though we wouldn't go so far as to say that the church has two natures, right, fully divine and fully human. That's Jesus alone. But we do live within this incarnational reality where we're marked by God, we're saved by God, we're marked by His Spirit, and yet we remain human, broken and frail, failing and succeeding. And it's the humanity of the church, uh, if we're honest, that makes church so hard, right? It is the fact that church is made up of sinners, uh, that church is made up of, of cowards like Peter and traitors like Judas, that the church is made up uh, of normal, ordinary, sinful people that makes the continued uh, belief in the church and participation in the church so incredibly difficult, right? The church is an article of our faith. When we confess the Apostles' Creed, we say, I believe in the church, right? The church believing in it, participating in it, aligning our life with the church is a part of what it means to follow Jesus. And yet, because of the humanity that we all bring to it, it's hard. I've been, uh, maybe some of you have been listening along to this, but I've been listening to, to a podcast that's become uh, pretty popular. Uh, it's called The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. Uh, you may have heard this, uh, this podcast. It's an extended story that tells the story of the rise of a megachurch in Seattle called Mars Hill Church and its pastor, Mark Driscoll. Uh, this church became uh, tens of thousands of people at multiple sites and millions of people uh, listening to him preach on the radio, or the radio, on uh, the internet. And then it all came crashing down 
uh, literally overnight, uh, it seemed that some of these churches were shuttering their doors, others were leaving, and it was all owing to uh, the narcissism and abuse and failure of the leadership. And this podcast tells that story, and it's interesting. It's not, you know, it's not just, there's a tendency always to kind of rubberneck an accident and look back and see what happened, but that's not what they're doing. They're looking and asking the questions, what is it about church life that leads us into these kinds of places, that leads us to overlook character failings in our leaders if the people are gifted enough and if the church is growing enough and if, if it's making enough money that we, that we overlook these character flaws in our leaders? What is it, again, about the human elements of the church that makes it so hard to keep faith in the church? Back in 2010, uh, novelist Anne Rice, she was uh, somebody who, she wrote largely vampire novels back in the day, and then she had a very public conversion to Christianity. And then in 2010, she had, again, a very public deconversion uh, from the church, and she wrote in an open letter, she wrote, today I quit being a Christian. I'm out. I remain committed to Christ, as always, but not being a Christian or being a part of Christianity. It's simply impossible for me to belong to this quarrelsome, hostile, disputatious, and deservedly infamous group. For 10 years I've tried and I've failed. I'm an outsider. My conscience won't allow anything else. As I said below, I'm out. In the name of Christ, I quit Christianity and being a Christian. Amen. It's a tough, tough thing to read. Right? And, and, and you look at it and you go, okay, there, there's, a, there's a certain level of obvious arrogance uh, in a letter like that. Right? I can't, I can't join myself to these people. Those people who are selfish and self-righteous and arrogant because I'm very much different than them. But if we're honest, we all feel that in some, some days. We all feel the weight of what it means uh, to be a part of a church that's made up of sinners. Right? In some ways, this question is lodged right in the heart of Christianity itself. Right? What we believe about humanity is that we are weak and frail, that we are sinful and rebellious. Right? That we are a church that's made up of building blocks that are fundamentally unsound. Uh, that we have leaders who are unsound because we're all sinners. I read a, a statistic uh, that came out this week, the Barna Group, that does surveys of the religious landscape of America, said that over the last 18 months, so think about the last 18 months, roughly the, the span of COVID, uh, about one-third of Christians have left their church. One-third. About one-fifth of Christians have left the church altogether. And usually that's not, I mean, I'm sure there's moments and there's, there's elements of that that are people wavering in their faith, no longer believing the divine claims of Christianity. But I think most likely most of it has to do with trouble in the human part, right? The, the conflict that came out of all of the upheaval of the last year, the difficulty of persisting in community across disagreement, the, the ability to keep showing up and being in fellowship with one another, that it's the human part that makes it so hard. And so in this story, we see the church getting about to dealing with some of the human part, mourning their losses, mourning the death and betrayal of Judas, setting out for new leadership to fill his place. And so we want to look at what does it mean in the midst of all of the difficulty and tragedy that befalls the church and the world 
to be a, a church that in the midst of our humanity remains faithful to God in the midst of who He has revealed Himself to be. And we're going to see that it means for us to be a gracious family rooted in prayer and shaped by God's story. What we see here in the church is a gracious family rooted in prayer, or grounded in prayer, committed to prayer, and rooted in God's larger story in the world. The first thing we see is that they are a gracious family. A gracious family. I love this description of who's there gathered in this group. It's a large group. It's about 120 people, Luke tells us. We know that that's not, uh, that's not all the Christians that existed. That's not all of the disciples of Jesus. We know that uh, there, there was a larger group in Galilee and in the surrounding area, but that's about 120 people at this point in Jerusalem that were followers of Jesus. And so they gathered together there in the, in the upper room. We're not told which upper room it is. We think it might be uh, the room in which uh, Jesus' disciples rented out to be uh, the setting for the Last Supper. But we're told they go to the upper room, a rented room, and the people who are present there, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot, uh, Judas the son of James, all of these, plus the women and Mary the mother of Jesus and his brothers. Think of the stories that are represented uh, in that group. You've got Peter who... Uh, in this next section is going to stand up again and speak. He's going to stand up as a leader of this group of 120. And you think about where Peter's been in the most recent uh, stretch of this story. Remember, Peter was the one who uh, Jesus prophesied would deny him in his moment of trial, and he did deny him. John gives us the beautiful story of Jesus and his resurrection appearing to Peter and restoring him to a place as a shepherd of his people. Right, The fact that Peter is standing up as a leader among this family, among this early church, means that it's a church that had learned how to extend grace. It was a church where the qualification for leadership wasn't perfection. The qualification for leadership wasn't full righteousness and never failing. That Peter, the coward, Peter the sinner, is here back in a situation, back in a position where he's leading in the church. Right, there's a difference we're going to see between Judas and Peter. Right, Judas, whose story ends in shame and infamy and trauma, was also one who betrayed Jesus. But Peter was someone who in his own way had failed, and yet he was restored. He repented. He acknowledged his failure before Jesus and was restored, not just into a place where he was kind of barely in the church, barely in the group of disciples, but restored back to a position of prominence and leadership. So we see that it's a community, that it's a family operating by grace. We see that grace again in the fact that Mary, the mother of Jesus, is there. Remember that beautiful scene on the cross, John 19, where Jesus brings John and Mary in front of him, and he says to, to John, Behold your mother, and to Mary, behold your son. That there on the cross, Jesus was looking out for his mother. He was looking out for Mary, who we believe by that time was already widowed, and who was now losing her son. And she was th he was thinking of her, restoring her to family, saying, John, look out for my mom, and mom, look out for John, the disciple that I love. 
And here we see a part of what that means. It means Mary getting brought into this extended new family of the disciples. That for John to love her, for John to look out for her, meant for him to reach out to her and to envelop her also in this new family that was coming together, this family of Christ's followers. This family looks out for one another in their weakness and in their mourning. They take one another in and provide family for those who have no family, for those who've lost their family. And then we get the interesting description that Jesus' brothers were also there. We know that Jesus' brothers uh, were not believers in his divinity or his messiahship during his lifetime. And I think for those of you who've had siblings, we can have some compassion for this this uh, situation, right? It would take a certain act of faith to believe that your brother was the son of God, uh, the one that you had grown up with and seen around the table, right? That to believe that he was the Messiah that Israel had been waiting on, that would take an act of faith too much for most of us. And yet somewhere between that moment and this moment, his brothers have found their way into the fellowship of disciples, 1 Corinthians 15 gives us a clue that Jesus appeared to James after his resurrection. We don't know exactly that it's, that it's the James, James the brother, but we do know that J- James the brother of Jesus did go on to become a disciple and a leader in the, in the early church. And so it was the resurrection. It was the resurrection that gave birth to faith inside of Jesus' own family. And what we see among the disciples is that they let him in. They didn't say, hey, look, James... We were following Jesus when it was hard. We were following him through the crucifixion. We were following him through the persecution. And now you just waltz in here because he rose from the dead and expect to be a part of things. No, they make space for them. They welcome them in. This is a family that has learned to live by grace. A family that's learned to forgive easily and quickly. A family that's learned to make space for new people. A family that's learned to extend tenderness and grace and mercy to the hurting. And so it's a gracious family. We learn too next that it's a family devoted to prayer. Verse 14, all of these were with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. They're devoted themselves to prayer. You know, it's interesting. Uh, Jesus, imagine how you would pray if you had just seen Jesus ascend to heaven. Right, if you had just seen Jesus, this one that, you know, as much as God the Father might be an an abstract idea that's hard to really uh, understand, at times hard to believe in because he's not someone that you can see or touch or know or talk to, to see Jesus, this one that you know loves you, this one that these disciples had lived their lives with, they'd seen his mercy, they'd seen his listening ear, they'd seen uh, his tender heart towards the hurting. To see him then ascend to the Father and where he would say, I'm seated at the Father's right hand to intercede for you. Imagine how boldly you would pray if you actually knew you had a friend sitting at the right hand of God making your prayers heard. And that's what they're doing. They saw Jesus go and now they go into the upper room and they devote themselves together to prayer. And of course, the, the reality is, is that this is true for every Christian. Right, even though Jesus, uh, we didn't have the advantage of the disciples to see and know and touch and talk to Jesus, we have the same situation in that we know that one who calls himself the friend of sinners, the friend of ordinary broken people like us, has gone to the right hand of the Father, and he hears us. 
He listens to us. He brings our prayers through His life to the Father. We would find ourselves, I think, if we really believed that, if we really articulated that and saw it in our minds, we would find ourselves praying with this kind of commitment and this kind of hope that the disciples bring to their prayers. John Calvin says that in this verse we see the two main uh, uh, defining marks of true prayer, that it brought them together in one accord and that they were committed to it. Right, that prayer, when the church goes into prayer, it unifies the church. It ought to. Right, it ought to be something where we come together to pray for one another, to pray for the world, to pray for the growth of the kingdom, to pray for our city. And it brings them together in one accord. It brings them together so that they're praying with one voice. 120 voices praying together with one voice. And it takes perseverance, right? It says they were devoting themselves to it. You don't, have to, you don't have to devote yourself to something easy, right? You don't have to devote yourself to something that gives immediate gratification, right? I, I ate a delicious almost half of a pan of brownies last night. There was no moment where it took devotion out of me to keep eating brownies, right? It tastes good. It meets my immediate need, and I just want to keep going, right? Something that's easy and quick doesn't require commitment, but friends, if you're anything like me, prayer is neither easy nor quick, right? Very often, prayer means getting up early in the few moments of quiet in our house. It means sitting there. It means trying to fight through my ADD to offer a few sentences of, of complete prayer and then getting on and moving on with my day without any real sense that anything's happened at all. Did God hear me at all? There was no feeling in my, in my heart that was, that was warmed. There was just, it was just faith. It's just going to God and speaking to God and trusting by faith that He hears. Trusting by faith that He hears me and that He loves me and that He cares for me. Trusting by faith that the, Jesus, that, uh, the God that Jesus tells us we're to call our Father, who loves us like a Father, that He's really there and that He really hears. You know, Jesus, uh, earlier in Acts 1, when he, dis when he told His disciples what to do, after he was resurrected from the dead, as he's appearing to them, he tells them to go and to wait in Jerusalem. You go and wait, and you'll receive power from on high when the Spirit falls. And so they, they listen to him. They go and they wait. But notice that their waiting is not a passive waiting. Right? Over and over again, uh, the Psalms encourage us to wait on the Lord. And we're tempted to think that waiting means doing nothing. Right? If you're waiting on your bus or waiting on your flight, you're just sitting there waiting for something to happen outside of you. And yet the disciples knew when, they, when God called them to wait, when Jesus said, go and wait, they went and they prayed. Right? That waiting for God is not a passive waiting. Waiting for God isn't a, isn't a going off and saying, well, I hope God does something. I hope God shows up. I hope God fixes this. Waiting for God is a prayerful, active waiting. It's a faithful waiting, right? It is waiting because you're waiting on, on an activity beyond yourself, right? They're waiting, in this case, for the Spirit to fall. But all of our life of faith is an active waiting, but it's a prayerful waiting. It's a waiting that, that pursues God and says, God, I'm desperate for you to act, for you to move, for you to show up, for you to give yourself. To, to come and to fix what's broken in my life 
or in this world. It's a waiting, but it's an active waiting, not a disinterested waiting. So they're rooted in prayer. And the next thing we see finally is that they're shaped by God's larger story. Peter, when he stands up and starts talking in verse 16, he says this. He says, Brothers, the Scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas. And then he goes into quoting a number of psalms. Uh, Psalm 64, may his camp become desolate and let there be no one to dwell in it. Psalm 109, let another take his office. And so what Peter is doing here as a Christian leader, as a leader in the early church, is he's taking this moment of failure, this moment of tragedy, this moment of betrayal, this moment even of trauma, right? I mean, it's a, it's a gory story, jo Judas buying a field and hanging himself and his guts falling out, right? Taking this moment of shame and trauma, Peter takes it and he situates it inside of a larger story. And in that, he models for us, look, there's going to be things in this life that are hard for you to understand. There's going to be moments of weeping. There's going to be moments of trauma. There's going to be moments of tragedy and sin that are going to be hard for you to make sense of. And so Peter helps us by situating it in this bigger story, by saying, look, this is, this is not new or unexpected. This fits into a larger narrative of what God is doing and has been doing in this world for a very, very long time. And notice these verses that he pulls out. These aren't the kinds of scriptures that we usually think about being fulfilled, right? These aren't, uh, these aren't prophecies, right? This isn't uh, God said through Isaiah there was going to be somebody called Judas who betrays Jesus, right? This isn't a prediction of the future, he takes these psalms where David, the king of Israel, is lamenting to God in prayer his own betrayal. The fact that it, within the kingdom, within Israel itself, he had advisors who betrayed him. He had people that he thought he could trust who turned their back on him. He had friends who became enemies. And so J Peter takes those and he says, look, those stories are now fulfilled in this story. What he's saying is this isn't a prediction of something that was going to happen. This is a, a theme that runs through the storyline, right? This is a theme that runs through the entire story of God's kingdom, that it is opposed by enemies, right? That within the, within the overall scope of the kingdom, the king has always had those who oppose his rule. David had enemies, subsequent kings of Israel had enemies, and so we should expect that Jesus the great king, the great king of Israel, would have opposition, that he would have enemies. And all of those other stories of betrayal, all those other stories of abandonment, find their fulfillment. They come to fruition and fullness in this darkest story of abandonment. When Judas, one who broke bread with Jesus, one who accompanied him uh, for his three years of public ministry, one who was there in the upper room at the Last Supper, when he betrays Jesus, Peter's saying, this is the fulfillment of something that always has been happening, that the kingdom has opposition, and it will continue to have opposition as it goes forward. And so he situates this story for them and says, look, you shouldn't be as hard as it is to mourn Judas, as tragic as it is what happened to him. This is a part of the story that's gone before, and it's a part of the story that's going to continue, that the kingdom meets opposition along the way.
And then he situates it uh, in this larger story again when he goes to select another uh, apostle. Notice Peter doesn't, when faced with the death of Judas, Peter and the disciples don't say, oh, well, I guess there's just 11 of us now. Right? They don't just say, okay, now we go on with one less. No, instead they say there's got to be 12. And so we have to set another one into this role. Why did there have to be 12? It's because what was going on with the selection of the 12 was, again, Jesus showing that what he's doing is situated in this larger story. That just as the 12 uh, tribes of Israel, remember the 12 sons of Abraham, just as they became uh, the foundation for the people of Israel, the 12 disciples were meant to serve as the foundation for the, the new Israel, the church. And so there had to be 12 in order to show this continuity with everything that's gone before. That, that, uh, that the 12, the, the new church, stands in a line with everything that's gone before it, all the way back to Abraham and his children. This is important for us, right? When, the, when it gets hard to believe that God works through the church, right? These, as we've said, weak sinners who are sometimes hard to love. It's important for us to remember that the church goes back a very, very, very long way. Right? That the church didn't start with, Ameri with, with American Christianity. It didn't start with the evangelical movement. It didn't start with the Presbyterian church. It didn't even start with the Western European church. It didn't start with the, the Roman Catholic church or the Eastern Orthodox church. It started millennia ago when God said to Abraham, Leave your father's house and everything you've known and set out and follow me by faith. And I'll make a covenant with you and your descendants will be as many as the stars in the heavens or the sand on the seashore. Right? The church exists because of the promise of God to work through ordinary, frail people like Abraham. Abraham wasn't an all-star. Remember when Abraham decided it'd be a good idea to lie and say his wife was his sister so that, uh, so that Pharaoh wouldn't kill him? when he took his wife, right? Abraham was a man of weak and struggling faith, right? Remember as, as his family line goes on when, when some of these kids go and sell their brother into slavery, right? This is not, uh, you know, this is not God's fantasy team for, for building a winner. This is God working through ordinary broken people for thousands of years, and there are going to be moments where it's hard, right? There's going to be moments where you look, uh, you look to your left and your right and you go, man, can we keep going with, with these people? There's going to be moments where you look at and read opinion pieces in the news about the failures of the church. And you go, can it really keep going with these people? But it has been going through human weakness, through human frailty, through even human sin and betrayal. For thousands of years, God works through people. And so they choose, out of the 120, they offer two. They draw lots. Uh, there's a, a lot that could be said there. Um, we notice, so this drawing lots to make a decision was a way of decision making that we see throughout the Old Testament. So the disciples, again, are just picking up what they knew from the old story. But it's also something that never happens again in the book of Acts after the Spirit comes at Pentecost. So it seems to me that this is kind of a transitional uh, moment where they're making a choice by lot casting, uh, but then as they go, they're led by the Spirit in a different way. 
But here they, they take two that are qualified. The qualifications they give are that it's of somebody who knew Jesus from his baptism through his resurrection and someone who was a witness to the resurrection. That that's what it means for, for someone to be an apostle, to be someone who could bear witness to the resurrection of Jesus. And this really is the foundation of the church, right? If, you, if you've been here when we recite the Nicene Creed, uh, it's a very old Christian creed that comes out of the Council of Nicaea in which we confess that we believe in the one holy Catholic and apostolic church. And what it means to say that the church is apostolic is to say that it's built on the witness of the apostles. Right Later on in Acts, we're going to learn that this early church, when they gathered together, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Right, The apostles' teaching in this moment is the testimony of living witnesses who saw Jesus in his life, who knew him and his resurrection, and who had seen the resurrected Jesus. Because the church is built on eyewitness testimony of the resurrection. Right? Bef now what it means for us to be an apostolic church means that we rest on, uh, on the Word of God. Right? That in our life, the, the Word of the apostles has been written down and codified. Right? It's been identified by the church as authoritative. Right? This, the voice of the Spirit speaks to us through God's uh, authoritative Word. But in, in those days before the Gospels had been written, before the, they had these eyewitness accounts written down, the apostles' teaching was literally the apostles' teaching. It was them telling others, you won't believe what I saw. You won't believe this Jesus. Let me tell you what he was like in his life. Let me tell you about his death. Let me tell you about his resurrection. That to be an apostle and to rest their lives on the apostles' witness was to rest on an eyewitness account of something that happened the resurrection of Jesus. This goes on. Uh, you know, this really is, uh, Jesus said earlier with the passage we looked at last week, that the core of the church's mission, like these apostles, is that we would be witnesses to Jesus' resurrection life. Not just in Jerusalem, not just 2,000 years ago, but we're told actually to the very ends of the earth, to places like Florida, uh, that the apostles never could have dreamed even existed, right? That, that, uh, that, that we were called to be his witnesses, normal, frail, broken human beings though we are, who testify that God is at work in us and through us in the world. You know, there's a story uh, that I love as a metaphor of the church's life uh, that we have in John chapter 9. It's a weird story. Uh, but it's a story where a blind man comes to Jesus. And Jesus, who all of, you know, Jesus could heal people uh, simply by saying, see. Right? He, he told one people, one, sometimes he used other things. Remember those, uh, the lepers that he told, go wash in a pool and then you'll be clean. Uh, but here to this particular blind man, Jesus goes to the dust. He bends down. He spits in the dust to make mud. And then he rubs it in the man's eyes until he can see, right? If I'm that guy, I'm wondering, why didn't, I, why didn't I get, you just snap your fingers and I'm well, or why didn't I just get, go wash in the water? Why are you spitting in dirt and making mud and putting that nasty mud in my eyes? But I do think it's a beautiful picture of the way that Jesus works and the way that he works through the church, right? Remember what we are. We're dust. We're dirt. We're made of clay. 
And Jesus takes our ordinary humanity, our frail life of dust, and he puts his life in it, giving it healing power for the healing of the world. Divine life in ordinary, humble human beings coming together for the healing of the world. That's our hope. It's our, it was the disciples' hope for how he'd work, and it's our hope in our day and age that he will use us, frail as we are, sinful as we are, to heal a broken world. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, uh, we come to you remembering that we are dust, that we are in ourselves weak and sinful and frail. We confess uh, that sometimes it's hard to believe that a body made up of weak and frail sinners could be used by you for the healing of the world. And so, Lord, we pray that you would help us to believe. Help us, Lord, to to love one another uh, in this life of gracious family, to persist in prayer uh, towards you as an act of faith, even when it's hard. And, Lord, to situate our lives in the story that you're telling in the world, to bear witness in our words and in our lives to your resurrection hope. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information or would like to help support the local body of Christ Church in town, please visit our website at ChristChurchInTown.org.